Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. There we go. The greatest show on earth. The inside story of the legendary 1970 World Cup. Back when football was football and sheep were worried. Uh, possibly the greatest uh, World Cup ever to take place. And the subject of the aforementioned book written by my good friend Andrew Downey. Andrew, how did the idea for this book come about? And did it almost drive you mad trying to write it? <laughs> First of all, thanks for the advice. It's good to see you again. Always lovely to, to see you too, my friend. Um... It was uh, uh, unusual because it was a publisher that came to me and asked me if I would be interested. Uh, I think it, it was, well, it was a Scottish-based publisher, and I think they understood that because it was 1970, because it was Brazil, we'll always associate the 1970 World Cup with Brazil and Pelé and, and that great team, probably the greatest team of all time, or one of the greatest teams of all time. I think they realised that they needed somebody who had a... a, a a footprint in Brazil who knew the Brazilian players who could get that side of it. Plus also somebody who, you know, could write in English and you know, was able to talk about to the English players, was able to to talk to the, you know, I speak Spanish as well. So I was able to 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 speak to some of the Uruguayans and the Peruvians and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think the fact that I had a, one foot in South America and another foot in the UK was was the reason that they 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 came to me. Um I'm like it's a, it's an amazingly difficult book to write, and by that I mean this is this happened fifty years ago, right? Fifty two years ago, or maybe fifty years ago when you were starting to write the book. An awful lot of the people who are involved probably aren't even with us anymore. You know, memories are what memories are. So how did you go about? Because it's extremely comprehensive. How did you go about putting the book together? Well, the, when I, when I, they offered this to me, or when they came to me and asked me about it, my first thought was, wow, this is going to be great. I am going to spend the next year and a half going around the world interviewing legends, and I'm going to have such a great time. And it took me about two or three weeks to realise that this was just not going to happen because <laughs> for several reasons, not least of which was money. It was just, you know, you know, you'll know this. I don't know if all your listeners will know this. You get paid so little to write these books. It's just, you know, you, you don't make any money out of it, or you make very little money out of it. Uh, and there's almost none left over for, for travel. Plus, you know, a lot of the Brazilian guys, they're all in their, in their, in their 70s now. Most of them are in their 70s now. Um, but they want paid for interviews, not uh, unreasonably. So there's you, you, just not money there to, to pay a lot of these people for stories. Plus... A lot of the people involved are, are sadly no longer with us, and an awful lot of others uh, don't remember, whether it's just because they're older, whether it's, whether it's because they have some kind of dementia. A lot of players uh, had that problem as well. So it was a real struggle at, at the beginning to get first-hand interviews. So there, was a, there were a few ways around it. There were a few ways I approached it. Because it was an oral history, it, it had to be all in quotes. This is the first thing that was you know, made the book stand out. I think it's an oral history. It's not me writing about the World Cup. It's the World Cup in the words of the players. And, and that was different for me. So, uh, first of all, I, I knew where a, lot of the, where a lot of the archives were in Brazil. So a lot of these players have given extensive interviews, you know, to museums or to universities 
uh, also obviously to uh, documentaries, to you know, newspapers and magazines. So I knew where a lot of that stuff was. So I was able to cherry pick a lot of that stuff and get a lot of the first-hand quotes from the Brazilians. At the same time, I was involved in doing a, a, a documentary about the 1970 World Cup that they were preparing for the 50th anniversary because I started this book in the second half of, or around about the middle of 2019, I think. Mm -hmm. So there was, a, I, I went to, I was in Brazil at the beginning of January 2020 and we went round with this documentary crew and we interviewed uh, Gerson, Gerzinho, Clodoaldo, um, who else? Uh, Paulo Cesar Lima, Caju, uh, Brito, mm. uh, a couple more I can't remember off the top of my head. So we interviewed uh, we interviewed a lot of these players, and I was able to get a few quotes from them during during that time. Um, so I, you know I knew where a lot of it was. The other thing I had to do is I realised that it needed to be a, about a lot more than just Brazil and England, or even Brazil, England, Uruguay. Uh, Germany and Italy, the semi-finalists, the four semi-finalists. So what I did was I, I, I got in touch with researchers, fellow journalists around the world in some of these more unusual places, teams that were knocked out in the first round, like Bulgaria, hmm. uh, like Romania, um, Sweden. So I got in touch with journalists in a lot of these places and said to them, you know, how much will it, you know, how, you know can you get in touch with one or two of these players? Can you do an interview for me? Uh, can you translate how much it would be? So yeah. I basically costed it uh, and went after those kind of interviews. And it was great. I, mean, I, I, I spoke to, I had probably, probably, I don't know, seven or eight or nine people around the world. Yeah. Daniel Salvador, for example, they got a great interview with one of the El Salvador players, which is, to me, was, is, was the most interesting part of the book because I've heard, a lot of people have heard what Brazilians have to say about 1970 and what the English have to say about 1970. But a lot of people have not heard about the El Salvador part and that was when you got a lot of the kind of odd and unusual anecdotes. So it was essentially, you know, my own interviews. It was getting people involved in some some of the out of the way countries, and it was doing archival research. These were the three three ways that I got all the quotes together. And are you free to sort of like? Did you have to pay for the archive stuff, for the museum stuff, the document stuff, or the documentary stuff, or is that in the public domain, so to speak? Because if you're paying for interviews, you know, hand over fist, you know, it's not even going to be worth your while writing the book at the end of the day, Andrew. Yeah, with Brazil, there was there was it's particular in Brazil because the the football museum have quite a good archive. And I spoke to the football museum at the start and said, you know, is this public? And he said, yeah, you can use it. That's no problem. And, uh, you know, I, I make a, a point of thanking them specifically in the book because they were very helpful. Mm. Um, yeah. And then it was going through and picking, you know, lines from lines from here and there. Uh, you know, the, the publisher, I mean, this was all explained to the publisher. The publisher dealt with that kind of this, the, that side of it. So I'm not really sure exactly mm. uh, how it all worked, but, you know, they assured me that it was all it was all OK. Mm. Um, what made the 1970 World Cup so great? I was born the following year, right? But still, throughout my life, and even I talk about it today as being the greatest World Cup, that Brazil team as being the greatest team. You know, people argue that the 1982 team might have been better, but didn't go as far, et cetera, et cetera. But what was it that made that World Cup so special, so spectacular? 
It's funny, I, I was born just before the 1970 World Cup and I don't remember it. My, my first World Cup memory is 1974, was running home from the Cubs on a Friday night. Mm. We got let out early because Scotland were playing Zaire. It was a, a, the, the first World Cup match I can remember. But even, even though I never saw 1978, I was always aware of it, like yourself. We were always aware that this was some, it was a, you know, a, a turning point, maybe. It was a real iconic moment in football. And there's lots of reasons. Uh, I think the most particular reason is because it was the first World Cup broadcast live and in colour. Uh, all the World Cups you saw before, uh, you might have had some live games in England, I would think, in 1966. Uh, 62, I don't know if there was any, any live coverage, but it was all in black and white. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a huge difference between seeing, a, 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 seeing Brazil, let's just take Brazil as an example, there's a huge difference in seeing Brazil in what were essentially varying shades of grey on these mm. grainy newsreels <laughs> and seeing, you know, the Brazil that we all know today in this glorious, you know, sun-drenched yellow. Mm. I mean, this is the, 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 the shirt that we, that we want that will forever be associated with beautiful football and, and, and Brazil. And I think the fact that this was all live and in colour for most of the world, if we're not to Brazil, uh, is a real, is a real, uh, is a real turning point. There were a whole bunch of other reasons. I mean, it was the first World Cup, you know, to have its, you know, to have its own ball with a tail star, you know, the black and white panels. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an iconic ball in itself. Uh, it was the first to have substitutes, first to 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 threaten red and yellow cards. It was all. It was, uh, it was on the turning point of football becoming professional. Mm. Football up until then had still been a kind of amateur, run by uh, enthusiastic amateurs. But in 1970, that was starting to turn. Football was starting to become a business. The players were, even though you didn't have shirts with you know three three stripes or swooshes or anything like that, the first players were starting to use their own sponsored boots. Mm. Um, you know, you were starting to see that whole transformation from football being just a sport, a sport and a little bit of a business to being what it is today, which is now, you know, it's, you know, 90% business and, you know, 10% sport. Mm. Because you describe it in the book as being a World Cup of firsts, but also a World Cup of lasts. I mean, to me, it seems to me that you're saying that this was the end of the innocence. This is when football sort of realised that, hang on a second, if we package this correctly. And I think you were saying as well that FIFA was very much an amateur organisation at the point. And when you look at them as being sort of, you know, worth several billion today, you know, um, what, what changed after that World Cup, do you think? Uh, money. I mean, it's quite simple. Uh, <laughs> it's money simple, isn't it? <laughs> coming into the game, yeah. Um, you know, back in 1970, I mean, you, 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 there was some kind of, there was, I can't remember if it was 74 or 78, that, that after 74 or after 78, that, that FIFA started to sign all their, their big contracts with, with, you know, the likes of MasterCard and Coca-Cola. Mm. Um, but football became more professional because, you had introduction of, of Jean Havelange. Jean Havelange you know, took over as president of FIFA from Sir Stanley Rouse in, I think, 1974. And he transformed football because he realised that, that, that there was just a lot, an awful lot of money to be made. Mm. And for all the criticisms and justified criticisms of, of Havelange that, that you can make, uh, he did, you know, he, he made football more, more, um, more of a global game. He won election by uh, courting the Asians and the Africans who up until 19, 1970 never had a, the, their own spot at the World Cup. They never mm -hmm. qualified 
They never had a qualifying place. Um, Morocco were the first African team to, to qualify for the World Cup. Um, so by doing that, he just, you know, he he, he brought in, you know, a whole, lot, a, whole, a whole lot of different countries. They had a lot more power. The, the, the Eurocentricity of, of, of FIFA was... was, was uh, you know, was 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 threatened, and all that started started to change. And it was just the 1970s. It was it was the same in other sports. It was the same in other industries. You know, sponsorship and you know, big companies coming in. Uh, it just it, it just transformed the game. It just it just absolutely transformed the game. Um, talk a little bit about the tactics in 1970 because Brazil played the the kind of football I mean they were a thrilling team to watch you basically had a rock solid defense and then you had you know some of the most creative players that the game has ever seen up front um there probably wasn't the kind of gig and press and there wasn't the kind of tactical detail that there is today but who went out to do what what kind of football did England play at that World Cup did Germany play did Italy play well there's a, the, one of the big misconceptions about the the 1970 World Cup is that Brazil won it by just being individual and creative and, you know, just running out without, with no tactical preparation and just, you know, being more skillful than everyone else. And that wasn't the case at all. Brazilians might be more skillful than, than, the other, than the other teams, but they prepared very well. The reason Brazil won the World Cup was, was essentially preparation. Um, Remember, the World Cup was a World Cup at altitude. It was, it was the first time it had been held at such a high altitude. And a lot of the teams were petrified going, going there to play. They did not know what the effects were going to be like because the world was just a lot smaller. People didn't go to Mexico and spend a lot of time. You know, people didn't travel the world for, for, you know, for long periods. And, and there was a lot of uh, mystery as to how this would affect them. Brazil prepared better than anyone else. They had like a six-month preparation period or almost six months where they, 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 they brought in all these trainers, they, 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 they uh, used NASA, um, uh, NASA techniques to get their players into shape uh, and to, to follow how, how, what work they needed, needed to do. And essentially it made Brazil the fittest team in the World Cup. 12 of their 19 goals were scored in the second half. Mm. I mean, that's the first thing. That, that, that's the thing that all the Brazilians say we won the World Cup because we were better prepared. The other thing is that people think that, uh, you know, having a player like Pelé, having a player like Jairzinho, you know, just just enabled them to turn it on. But that really was not was only half the story, because uh, they say, listen, we knew what our what our tactics were. Um, we were able as players to change the tactics in the middle of the game. We had that kind of we 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 were given that. Uh, the hegemony by Zagallo. I mean, the coach Zagallo, the coach knew a lot of the players from he had only played in he played in the World Cup final himself just just eight months uh, eight years previously. So he knew Pelle very well. He knew a lot of the players very well, and and, and he he gave them that 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 power to change things. And you would see it in the semi final, for example, against Uruguay, where Uruguay is, you know had singled Gerson out as the midfield maestro, and they said, you know, we have to sit on Gerson. If Gerson doesn't get the ball, then Brazil aren't going to produce. And Gerson sussed this out really early on. He said to Clodoaldo, listen, I can't play here. I need to, I need to, it was man-to-man market, I need to, you know, come a bit deep and let you move into my space. Mm. And they did that and that kind of transformed the game for them. That was one thing that they all said was was vital. The other really, you know, emblematic thing was the goal against Italy in the final, the, the last goal by Carlos Alberto, 
Mm. Uh, all the Brazilians tell the story about how the night before the game, uh, Carlos Alberto Parreira, who became the Brazilian coach in 1994 and won the World Cup in 1994, he was one of the scouts or one of the, the coaches, and he had went, he had seen Italy, and he had taken pictures with his camera from the stands. Mm. Imagine this today. And he had the slides, and he was showing the slides to the Brazilian team for the day, the day or the, the day or two before the Italy game, and say, "Listen, here's a series of slides that show how the the left back moves out, can be pulled out of position." Mm. And so the Brazilians, they they, they 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 prepared this. They had pulled the left the left back out of position. They knew that whole you know flank was going to be open. And at the end, once they were tired, and they did that. And remember, Carlos Alberto gallops up the right wing. Pele just rolls a ball in front of him, and, and he slaps it into the goal. So these were the kind of things that. People, you know, people forget about 1970. I think got lost a little bit in the whole, you know, uh, you know, football art thing that the uh, or mystery, the football art legend, the mystery that surrounds Brazil. Um, you and I have argued endlessly. I don't even argue with you anymore about how Pelé is the greatest player ever to play the game, which is your statement, not mine. Now, um, make that case for to the people. Get up in your soapbox now and tell me why he's the greatest player ever to play the game. In your humble opinion. Um, <laughs> Where do you start? How do, how do yeah? How do I make the case? I mean, first of all, I mean, when, when it's put in, when you say it in black and white like that, and, and, you, and you make, I mean, I'd rather not make it into that kind of, uh, you know, make it stark as that because when you say it that way, it sounds like you're dissing Maradona or you're dissing Messi, mm. and I certainly would diss Maradona or I would diss Messi. I mean, it's certainly. Uh, you can make very good cases for all three of them to be the greatest of all time. I, the, the only thing I would say, or the main thing I would say, is that people don't understand how good Pele was because they never saw him, which is an argument that I've never really understood. I mean, you know, you don't know... Uh, I mean, we don't know a lot of things because we never saw it. I mean, we know, you know, we know... You know, the Roman Empire fell, but we weren't there to see it. But we know what happened. You know what I mean? We knew the Titanic sunk. We know hundreds of people died. We never saw it. Mm. But you read about it, you read, you know, you 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 research and you, you know what happened. And it's the same thing with Pele. You don't have to have seen him uh, to to realize you know, how great he was. The thing is about 1970 is that Pele went to 1970 knowing that it would be his last World Cup. He had said beforehand... I don't want, uh, this is my last World Cup, it's my last chance. He had this thing in his head that when Rapelli appeared on the, on the scene in 1958 as a 17-year-old, you know, he was one of the key players in helping Brazil win the World Cup, uh, scoring a hat-trick in the semi-final and scoring a couple in the final. In uh, 62, he was injured in the second game, so he didn't play a big part in 62. In 66, he was kicked out of the tournament. The, 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 he played against Hungary, Portugal and Bulgaria, and he was relentlessly hacked down. Mm. And in the last game, he, you know, he, he just limped about there. I mean, the, the, the Portuguese, you know, hammered him and, and he was he he limped, he limped around for 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 most of the game. So Pele knew that after 1958, he had not produced his best football, hadn't been able to produce his best football. Mm. Uh, he was convinced after 66 that um that the World Cup was not his thing, that he had been unlucky, that injury 62, being kicked in 66, that he had had enough, 
Uh, he thought football was changing to be able to, 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 to focus on the, 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 the strength and, and power rather than the skill. And he took a sabbatical after the 66 World Cup. Pele never played for Brazil for two years. But he was convinced to come back because he saw this as his chance of greatness. And he, he, he was very, very focused in, in 1970. He was very focused. He, 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 it, it's, it's great. It's really interesting to hear some of the players talk about it. You know, some of them, you know, you know, the, the, after Brazil beat England, for example, in the, in the, in the group stages, you know, a lot of the players were, you know, were cheering and celebrating and Pelly went around to them and said, you know, what do you think you're doing? What are you cheering for? We've no one anything yet. Mm. You know, rein it in. You know, Rivellino told me a great story. I had a long sit down with Rivellino and he said, you know, the, 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 he said the meat that we ate in in Guadalajara at the restaurant it was tough, and he said I wanted to complain, and he said I looked over at Pele and Pele was cutting the meat into tiny little pieces, mm. you know, and he was eating it in tiny pieces because it was easier to chew, and he thought, you know, if Pele's not complaining, then I can't complain. <laughs> so it was that kind. Pele had that kind of influence on people, and we remember 1970 Pele in 1970 not because of what he did. Or not because of the goals he scored, because of the goals he never scored. You know, mm. the famous, you know, one where, against Uruguay where he does the dummy and it go, and then he shoots past the one where he, you know, he goes. I think it's against Czechoslovakia and it goes just over the bar. Mm. You know, the other one where he volleys it from the halfway line and the, and the and the keeper scrambles to save it. You know, we remember these things precisely because we don't have a lot of the footage of the great stuff that Pele did. Mm. So this was really the, the you know Pele's crown and glory. This was really you know his chance to. To, to show the world that, you know, he was, you know, the greatest of all time and three World Cups, you, you know, as a player, no one's done it. You can't argue with that. No one's probably ever going to do it either. Is he underappreciated, Andrew? Because, you know, there's always this worry, like, you know, like I, I started watching the Boston Celtics basketball team in the mid-1980s, right? And at that time, Larry Bird was the big player. But what I didn't realise at the time, because I didn't know the history of the club, was that the former centre they had called Bill Russell wasn't only one of the greatest basketball players of all time, I would hold him to be one of the greatest Americans of all time because of the work that he did with civil rights. Is sure. there a danger somehow that because we don't have that footage, that people like Pelé that they're somehow going to slide down the rankings a little bit, that, you know, we have a Messi and an Mbappe and a Ronaldo now, and that we'll talk about those guys and not Pelé and not Riva and not Cruyff in years to come. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's already happened uh, because, I mean, you, I mean, I, I, you see footage on Twitter today, you know, people, I mean, I saw footage yesterday, Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Coutinho scores a, scored a great goal in training for Aston Villa. Like so what? I mean, he probably you know, he's probably score goals in training every single day. I mean, this is this is what we're this is what Pele is competing against, you know. Yeah, it's guys scoring great goals in training, and, and youngsters today will see that and think, oh, wow, you know, nobody did as good as that. Yeah, I mean, it is also worth repeating that the football that they played back then it's 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 a, it's a million times slower. I mean, mm. it's much much slower. I mean, it looks like antiquated compared to the you know the pace and the power that you know, guys like Messi and Mbappe and Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, in Holland, all these guys have today. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole different game. But my argument is always that, yeah, the, the guys today, I mean, they're every bit as skillful, they're faster, they're stronger, they cover more ground, all that kind of stuff. But football today is also easier because you know the strips are lighter, the ground is you know flatter, the turf is flatter, the surface is flatter, um, you know, the ball is lighter, the ball is rounder, even you know, believe it or not, you know, the boots are lighter. Uh, you know, you can't tackle from behind, 
you know, you can't spit in somebody's face. You know, <laughs> you, know you don't have to spend, uh, you know, you don't have to spend, you know, when you were in Brazil, fly from, from Brazil to, to Sweden, for example, you know, they went on, a, they had to take, I think, three or four different flights because, mm. you know, planes never got that far. All these little factors that make that made football much harder in the 50s and 60s and, and even in the 70s are forgotten, you know, when put up against, you know, 24 camera angles and slow motion and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um. Uh, that's your, uh, as far as I know, it's your second book on Brazilian football. You wrote the wonderful Dr. Socrates before that, which is a brilliant book, not just about Brazilian football and a brilliant uh, Brazilian footballer, but also about his politics and the effect that he had on society there. What's what's next? Are there any more books that you'd love to write? Um, yeah, there's a couple I'd love to write, but uh, they're difficult to do. Uh, I'm also I'm, you know, spending most of my time in London these days. That makes it a little bit harder. Um I do have some ideas. I'm working on something, but I'm, I, I can't even tell you what it is yet. I just have, have to wait a wee minute. It's a bit of a secret because it's still, to be honest, I don't know if it'll come to fruition. So I need That's to. But, but if we, if we zoom out just a little bit, are you still more interested in telling the story of Brazilian and South American football history? Or, you know, could your lens turn back to Scottish and British football? Um, well, I think the, 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 the answer to that is that you know, my expertise, if I can call it that, and, you know, in inverted commas, is, is South America, is Brazil. Um, there's probably, you know, a hundred guys, a thousand guys in England who can tell stories about English football, you know, better than I can because they've been around here for the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, and it's, I think it makes sense for me to focus on Brazil because, you know, having spent so long there, you know, I know the little details uh, that really make, that make up the book uh, or make up any kind of book, you know, uh, I know the context, I know the nuance and that kind of stuff. And I, I don't have that expertise in uh, in Europe. And I think that's, a, I think it makes sense for me to stick with what I'm good at. Not good at very much. So if I'm good at something, I'll better stick with it. I'll tell you something for nothing, pal. You've forgotten more about Brazilian football than most people will ever know. And whatever book it is you decide to write about the subject in the future, I guarantee you I'll be buying it the day it comes out. Andrew Downey, thanks so much for speaking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.